Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Kititse. This week, Kititse with Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfeld. Rabbi Hirschfeld is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfeld. Thank you, Larry. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Tzvi Hirschfeld. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, be offering the Parsha Tashavua Shiur uh, class on this week's Parsha. This will be Parshat Ki Tetzay. Uh, when you go out to war, uh, hopefully it has nothing to do with reality and there are no wars going on. But uh, the Parsha itself is filled with uh, a lot of laws. We're in a section of Devarim where Moshe is sort of reviewing and legislating about all the laws or many of the laws of the Torah. Uh, and we come across here a very strange one. One of the strangest, I think, or at least one of the most difficult to understand, and that is the law of the Ben Sorer Umore, uh, the wayward and defiant son, as it's uh, translated here in the JPS. So let's take a look at this section, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on here and, and what the takeaways might be. Uh, so the, the parsha, the section here begins with Ki yihiyele ish ben sorer umore, enenu shomea bakol aviv uvakol imo, the yisruoto velo yishma alehem. If a man has a wayward and defiant son who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them, even after they discipline him, the tafsuvo aviv imo vahotsiuoto el ziknei iro vel shar mekomo. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the public place of his community. Vaamru el ziknei iro benenu ze sawer umore enenu shomea bekolenu zolel v'sove. They say to the elders of the town, "This son of ours is disloyal and defiant. He does not heed us." And they also add, if you notice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Zalel the Sove is interpreted as uh, somebody who eats a lot and drinks a lot. Urgamuhu kol anshe iro va'avanim vameit uviarta hara mikirbecha v'chol Yisrael yishmu v'yirau. Thereupon the men of his town shall stone him to death. This you will sweep out, or thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Now, obviously, we have a lot of questions, disturbing questions about this parasha. Number one, the language that's used of the, taking him to the gates of the city in front of the elders and punishing him because Israel will hear. There are a lot of references here that sort of connote idolatry, that the punishment for idolatry. And the question is, what did this kid do that warrants the death penalty? If eating too much uh, uh, brings about a death penalty, then almost every teenage boy I have met would be liable to this kind of punishment. So it's very, very strange. You know, how could this be that the parents uh, are bringing this child and the crime that the child is accused of is uh, gluttony? And the result is uh, stoning, stoning to death. Uh, the, the, this uh, section here sort of challenges us on a lot of levels. And it's important, I think, to go in and think about what might be going on here. Now, the good news is that it wasn't only morally and ethically challenging to us as modern readers, but the sages clearly, the rabbinic sages clearly had a very serious problem or challenge with this section. And as, as a result, through interpretive means, they come up with all sorts of limitations and restrictions on the implementation of this rule. They come up with an age limitation, and it's only from the beginning of puberty till the end of puberty, a matter of months. They come up with who owns the, the meat and the wine, what money, money it was paid for, who the, the boy ate it with, 
It goes on on the amounts. They come up with these massive amounts that have to be consumed in a specific amount of time. And then finally, we get to the real kicker here, which uh, in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, who says that both the, the husband and the wife, the father and the mother, have to be the exact same in appearance and height and even have the same voice. Now, obviously, these requirements basically all build up on one another and make the implementation of this rule impossible. It would be almost a complete impossibility to ever have a child who fulfills, and the parents who fulfill all of these various requirements. And therefore, as a result, even the uh, Gemara quotes a bright a tonic source that says, It never has happened and it never will happen uh, precisely because of all these, so to speak, halachic requirements that would have to be fulfilled. Now, uh, on a certain level, we can see that the sages, or it's often understood, that the sages in their interpretation of this section clearly think that this is not something that God wants us to do. They do not believe that this is an activity, that parents bringing their child forward for a death penalty because of gluttony is an ideal practice, a practice that should be, should be pursued. In fact, you could say the exact opposite. The, what's emerging from here is the sense that they don't ever want to see it happen and don't believe it ever could happen, and no decent God-fearing society would ever do it. Now, in addition to Rabbi Yehuda, we have another voice, Rabbi Shimon, who says it's not only a practical impossibility, but... No parent would do this, right? He even says, Rabbi Shimon says, Are you telling me that because he ate this large amount of meat and he drank all this wine, the parents would ever bring their child out to be killed, right? Leaving aside all the technical ways in which this law couldn't happen, Rabbi Shimon seems to be saying it would never happen because no parent would ever behave this way towards their child. So both for sort of legal technical reasons and for the uh, the idea that parents would have to be the ones to initiate, the rabbis, the sages, all except for one, assume that this law is an impossibility. So, of course, the question is, if the law is impossible to ever be implemented, and we never want to implement it, then what is the purpose of this law? Why would the Torah command something that has no practical effect? And here, the rabbis say something very important and striking, and they say, Lama nichtav why is it written? Durosh v'kabel schar. You should interpret it and receive reward. And of course, the question that uh, emerges there is, what do they mean by drosh v'kabel schar? It would seem that uh, the suggestion is not only, hey, it's more Torah for you to study and you get reward for Torah study, but rather, even though the implementation of this law should never happen and cannot happen, there is something to be learned from the severity of what's described. There is a lesson or multiple lessons that the Torah wants to impart uh, by by describing uh, such a terrible end uh, to this child who is behaving this way. Uh, in other words, I think that there are times, at least according to the way the sages read it, the Bible, and they do the same thing with the death penalty all over the place. They impose conditions that are basically impossible to fulfill, so they never have to evoke, invoke the death penalty. And I think there, too, it's done. The death penalty appears, at least according to the sages, as a way of the Torah to express how terrible the thing is going on. 
Not that we should ever punish anybody with the death penalty, but rather this is something that is so bad, it avo- it, it, the death penalty is on the table. We should realize what a terrible thing we're looking at. And so, of course, the question here is, what is going on here that is so terrible uh, uh, with these parents and this child that the Torah wants to emphasize without giving ever implemented practically that something severely, severely wrong is going on and needs to be addressed not only by the, by the parents, but by the community. I want to begin with an approach that's going to seem a little out there, but actually I think is somewhat textually rooted, and that is uh, Rabbeinu Bechaye, who suggests he makes a comparison between uh, what's happening with the rebellious son, the Ben Sorero Moreh, and Akedat Yitzchak, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Meaning he's suggesting here the message for parents is, and it's a very, it's a strange one, as a parent, uh, it shook me, but I think it's worth sharing here, uh, that love of God has to come even before love of family. Now, uh, and that was the message of the Akedah, he says. That's what Avram was demonstrating in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And that's what's being expressed here. Now, on the one hand, I hear that and I'm thinking, this is impossible. Why would we ever want to ask parents to choose between love of God and love of child? But what it did get me to think about to some level is that as parents, we do educate our children to live for certain values. Meaning, uh, every parent here in Israel who sends their child off to the army, myself included, in some way is saying the value of protecting the nation and accepting your responsibility as being part of this nation, uh, is more important than keeping you safe at all times. And in a way, I think every time we as parents send our children off to explore the world, to take risks, uh, we are basically telling them uh, it is more important that you grow into the kind of human being we want you to be than absolute safety, right? If we want to keep our children absolutely safe, we should keep them in like a vault. And then we know nothing will ever happen to them. They'll never be hurt physically or, or, or any other way. But obviously, that's not what we're doing. And I think what that emphasizes, at least for me, is that our our reason for being parents can't only be selfish and ego-driven. We want our own immortality. We want little beings that will look like us and carry on in the world, even fulfill our unfulfilled dreams. But that can't be the point of parenting. The point of parenting must be that we are bringing children in this world as a way of continuing and building uh, a better world and fulfilling, uh, at least for me, what God wants from us in this world. And that has to be the guide for our parenting. And I think the sense here in the story is the parents uh, have to see that. The Torah is telling us, as parents, we have to see the education of our children to improve the world, protect the world, uh, and be good people. That's why we've accepted this task as parents, and that has to be at the forefront of uh, what we are about. Another point that many commentators point to uh, in what's happening with the Ben Sorer Umore is the uh, the flow of the Parsha here. The first mitzvah of the Parsha actually begins talking about war brides. What happens when the soldier in the field falls in love with a captive woman and he takes her home to be his wife and how he has to treat her uh, and be appropriate towards her? 
And then it moves into what happens if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and the inheritance problems that that could potentially create if he tries to tilt the scales away from the unloved wife and towards the children of the loved wife. And only then do we get to the law of the rebellious son. And the Midrash wants to point to the idea that what you have here is basically a breakdown of family life. That it started out by this man marrying a woman, uh, for, not for the right reasons, perhaps out of, out of lust or the heat of battle he chooses her. And that moves to an unhealthy home situation where you have wives that are not loved equally and children that are not cared for equally. And that ultimately leads to the rebellious son, meaning that the breakdown of societal norms and values uh, can happen precisely at, at the family level. And there's a breakdown in the family unit that loving parents uh, who love each other uh, are critical to the health and development of uh, a normal society. And when that family unit breaks down, I think the Torah is telling us, the consequences will spill outward, not only to that family, but uh, to the community at large. And that's why the community has a role here in stepping in. Uh, I would also add in that there's also a very sharp message about parental responsibility here, right? In other words, the Torah says part of the parent's declaration is uh, he doesn't listen to us, and the Torah emphasizes they have tried to educate uh, this son. And I think there it's telling us that uh, ultimately parents are responsible for the education of our children and teaching values. You know, we have a tendency in modern times to outsource a lot of this, that schools and teachers and camps and counselors and youth groups and the community, you know, we want to surround our children with positive role models and educational experiences. But at the end of the day, it's on the parent. The parent has to take charge, and ultimately it's the parent who's responsible for transmitting the values and shaping uh, the values and education and experiences of the child, and that this is their primary responsibility, uh, and parents have to take it so seriously because uh, the Mishnah actually says the reason the boy is punished or put to death is not because of the fact that he's a drunkard and a glutton, but because his being drunk and glutton at the age of 13 will ultimately lead to outright lawlessness, theft, and violence when he's 20, meaning he is judged by according to what he's going to turn into. And again, I don't think the sages ever imagined we put this judgment into effect, but to realize that if we have a young person behaving badly now and the parents don't step in, worse behavior could be the outcome later on. And that's why parents have to be held to such a high standard vis-a-vis -vis the values and actions that they're transmitting to their children. I would say another element here that's trying to be communicated is the role of the community, right? At the end of the day, the parents don't put this child to death, but rather the community does. And I think for two reasons. First of all, I think there's a message here that in addition to the parents, the community is responsible for the community's children, right? There are concentric circles here. There's family, there's community, and ultimately there is the nation. And the community 
has to take an active role in helping and supporting and taking responsibility along with the parents for what's happening inside uh, these families, both because uh, the parents and the child also belong to the wider community, but also the effect, as the text says, the entire people will hear and see what has gone on, right? In other words, the, the stoning happens by way of the people of the town, but ultimately the entire nation will hear and will be afraid, it's says, right? In other words, there's a goal here to, uh, to see that we are all affected. The entire nation is ultimately affected by bad behavior, even at the micro level, right? Uh, a child that, uh, that is acting badly has, has a, a, an effect not only on the family, but also on the local community. And ultimately, these examples even flow out to the nation. And so that's why there's a sense of communal and national responsibility along with the parents for the well-being and education of children. So the community can't just look at a family that's struggling and say, hey, that's on them. Uh, the community has a job to support and help uh, individual parents, and the nation has a responsibility to support and help individual communities, uh, meaning that there's a dual message. On the one hand, it's the parents are primarily responsible. On the other hand, that responsibility ultimately extends outward to the community and the nation. Uh, I think there's another powerful message here, uh, which has to do with how we relate to food. Right. The fact that gluttony is seen as being the, the the evil here is very interesting. And I think Judaism and its practices and even in the Torah itself has a very mixed message about both food and material blessing. Right. On the one hand, earlier in Deuteronomy, we're told the reward for observing God's commandments is to enjoy prosperity in the land of Israel that uh, we'll have rain and we'll have crops and our animals will be healthy and we'll, we'll be well-fed and well-taken care of. On the other hand, the Torah warns in multiple places, but also in, in Devarim and Deuteronomy, especially in chapter 11, that there's a danger that when we are wealthy and well-taken care of, we can come to forget about God. Our ego swells and we think we're in charge and we're powerful uh, and God is left out of the mix. So there's this message uh, of, of, of what's going on here with food and prosperity. Uh, Maimonides says that the, the gluttony indicates the child is out of control. That are, that the desire, the endless seeking of personal pleasure can ultimately lead to a loss of impulse control. That gluttony is a sign that I'm putting my own physical needs and desire for pleasure at the center of my behavior. And that has really negative consequences, uh, in terms of my behavior, uh, as a human being with others in society, right? If, if my focus in life is my own, is my, are my impulses. And so many of my impulses are directed towards physical pleasure. Uh, my ability to grow uh, into a responsible, moral, and ethical, and spiritual being is very much going to be put at risk. The flip side, of course, is that we can enjoy uh, material blessing as long as it's a vehicle for gratitude. I think the message here is gluttony is not the same as enjoying a a wonderful Shabbat dinner with family and friends. And I think the difference is, is the eating the goal or is the eating a tool to express a higher spiritual joy and a connection to something greater? And I think we have tools for this, right? That's why the Torah says we have uh, blessing after food, 
right? The role of grace after meals is fundamentally to, I think, be a, a boundary against, uh, uh, gluttony and against uh, physical pleasure for its own sake. That, that when we enjoy and we are satisfied with our meal, we give thanks to God. And therefore, physical pleasure can actually be a way to, uh, concretize the idea of gratitude and a sense of being taken care of by God, right? It's not a chance to serve my ego and put myself at the center, but really it's a chance to feel taken care of and blessed uh, by God and express gratitude. So I think our relationship to food in Jewish tradition is complicated and complex, uh, and the challenge of dif- distinguishing between gluttony and Physical pleasure as an expression of spiritual gratitude and joy is something that requires a lot of work. Uh, the Ibn Ezra focuses on the gluttony as an expression of Epicureanism. Uh, this child has rejected spiritual values. And here again, I th- write that the purpose of life is simply eat Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I think there too, right, this, we have a, a, an interesting message. On the one hand, uh, we are encouraged to work and to try to succeed uh, and to build a material world that is more comfortable and more enjoyable. And, and that's not seen as a negative as far as I can tell within Jewish life. But at the same time, again, the question is, what's the ultimate purpose? Uh, is, are we building a, a positive material life to enable a positive moral and ethical spiritual life? Or is material success are the only thing that we are concerned about? And here too, we are constantly balancing, uh, a positive and healthy and normal uh, relationship to the physical world and physical blessing as people who live in physical bodies. At the same time, we can't allow our pursuit of physical pleasure to let us neglect the idea that we have souls and our souls have genuine spiritual needs and we have a higher purpose to fulfill in the world that we are living in. So I want to conclude by, by showing what's happened here. In other words, we could read this, this piece in the Parsha and just be offended and repelled and saying, how could the Torah, a divine document, a significant document, a holy text, describe this death penalty for this child or this, this young adult who is a, who is a glutton? And I think the sages very wisely led us through a two-stage process. On the one hand, we're not going to do it. We're going to show you how to interpret these verses in a way that we will never carry out this action. At the same time, just because our legal or even moral obligation has been fulfilled by neutralizing the implementation of this law, we still have the stage of droshu kabalskar. We still have to learn it. We have to dig deep and try to understand what is the message here. What is the Torah trying to tell me about parents and family and education and community and our relationship to physical and material wealth? And I think that's the stage we have to look past maybe the physical implementation of this rule and see what is the deep cultural, educational, and spiritual message that is being sent by this very extreme reaction that the parents and the community are having towards this uh, young person who seems to be out of control. And I think that that's a worthwhile exercise in general when we come across verses in the Torah that we say, you know, if I take this on a straightforward level, 
level. This is terrible. This is awful. And I want to shut the book. And I think we have an alternative, and that's an alternative to, to dig deeply and try to explore the values. That once we realize we're not going to take this text in the literal direction, what are the values that uh, we are meant to learn from what's going on here? And I think uh, Ben Serrero Moret, The Rebellious Son, uh, is a beautiful example of how we can do that. So I appreciate your time, and I enjoyed sharing these thoughts with you, and I look forward to having more opportunities in the future. Have a wonderful Shabbat. Thank you, Rabbi Hirschfield. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Thank you.